1: Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, August 14th, the Your Eyeballs Are Gonna Fall Out of Your Head edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who's 10, and we live in Los Angeles.
2: I'm Zach Rosen. I am also host of another podcast that's called The Best Advice Show. And I'm the dad to Noah, who's five, and Ami, who's two. We live in Detroit.
1: Today on the show, we're welcoming back Phil Maciak. He was here last time to laud your favorite TV show, Bluey. He's back today to talk about one of the hottest parenting topics around, screen time. That's also the name of his new book, which traces the history and meaning of this complicated topic. We'll hear Zach's interview with Phil right after this break.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're back. Zach, what can we look forward to in this interview you did with author Phil Mastiak about screen time?
2: So Phil is a TV critic as well as an author and a professor. And he writes just really smartly and historically about the emergence of, you know, the moral panic that is my kids are getting too much screen time. Like that that has been going on for, for quite some time. And in fact, the phrase screen time emerges in the early 90s. And he, he talks about this Mother Jones article where it first emerged. And like just the meaning of screen time itself has changed so much because, you know, when we were growing up, of course, like screen time was like our TVs and like if we had computers. Um, but now like screens are just ubiquitous in kind of a wild way, you know, with phones, even our like refrigerators, some of them, not mine, but fancy people have screens on their fridges, like screens are everywhere. And so our relationship to this, this moral panic that he describes has also evolved. So we talk about that. um, And, you know, we start out by talking about our kids, Phil's also a parent. So I asked him how he talks to his kids about screen time, and, and, you know, how he is able to talk about screens, this thing that he's, you know, devoted his life to without um stigmatizing it.
1: And with that, let's hear Zach's interview with Phil Masiac.
2: Welcome back to Mom and Dad Are Fighting.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: How has your relationship to Bluey changed since we last talked? <laughs>
3: I we're a little bit out of the bluey like the high period of bluey but you know the games are still there and every once in a while my daughters are like pretend that you don't know anything and you have to ask what everything is and uh that's when bluey rears its head
2: that's a great way to rear it though that's, a, that's such a fun <laughs> game is there a new obsession
3: um not really I my youngest daughter is uh is really into Mira Royal Detective
2: oh um, yeah Let's when hear it from Mira, Royal Detective. <laughs> I know That song's well. in my
3: head all the time. We're all in yep. the case. We're all in the case. The case. Uh, she's always saying, uh, I think these people might be bandits. And she's right <laughs> a lot of the time.
2: <laughs> Who is she referring to? Like corporate tycoons?
3: <laughs> no, normally it's just the usual bandits on Mira. But I Oh, think oh on she the gets show. older.
2: I, I see what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> succession. She's talking about succession. <laughs> so you have two kids, right? Yours are seven and three? Seven and three, yeah. Yep. And mine are five and two. Mm -hmm. Um, And so both of us still control (laughs) our kids screens. And so I look around and I see some parents like stigmatizing screens. And I get that I probably do it myself. Sometimes I try not to. So I'm just curious for you as a scholar of screens and screen time and, and media and television, how do you talk to your kids about screen time?
3: Yeah. Well, so like you said, I mean, we're, we're both in a position where our kids are young enough that we're sort of, um, you know, we're DJing, uh, to a certain extent or another, what they're watching. Right. Um, and I think you know I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I grew up in the '90s, right in the the, the high period of the screen time moral panic mm-hmm. um, stuff. And uh, my parents were very relaxed about it. Like they they mm-hmm. I never got a sense from them that that TV was you know because it was TV at that point, um, and and you know video games a little bit. But I was I'm so bad at video games it was never really a problem. Same. Um, I don't know that they worked very hard to do this but they just didn't stigmatize it. I never had a real sense when I was growing up that this was something that was uh, in in essence bad. Um, and you know I think that I a lot of my mem- I have a lot of memories screen time memories as a kid of Shared screen time, watching movies, you know, beloved movies with my parents, or watching mm-hmm. you know, a big sports event or something like that. But I, I think we've tried in a lot of ways to um, to do that with with our kids, right? To to give them the sense that what they're watching does matter, right? What they choose matters, um, and that that it is a choice, right? But also that um, there isn't something that is inherently bad about this. Yeah, yeah. So in
2: in this book, you basically say. The screen asks you to look at it, and it makes you feel bad, or bad and something more when you do. This is what it's like. This confusion is how it feels. This is screen time. So this is a book about that feeling, where it comes from, what we can do with it, and what it does to us. So what is this feeling? How do you describe it?
3: (laughs) For me, it's ambivalence. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think part of the sort of cultural history that I draw out in the book is a cultural history of how that ambivalence leans bad. So often leans negative. And I think a lot of that is, is sort of rhetorical framing, right? I Uh feel good about some things I do on screens, right? I, I like watching my favorite shows. I like seeing friends on Instagram. I like connecting with people. I like writing, right? Um, And then there are things that I don't like on screens or that make me feel bad, right? You know, the, I write about revenge, bedtime, procrastination, the kind of Mm -hmm. like, the kind of like compulsive, a uh, scroll of the internet that you do when you're avoiding going to sleep or the Wikipedia
2: you know, rabbit holes,
3: <laughs> Wikipedia rabbit holes or UFO yep. videos, right? Things that uh-huh. freak me out or cause me to, to lose things. Right. Those are bad things. And, yeah. and, um, you know, so to that degree, I feel ambivalent. Right? I, I feel like there are things I do there that are good for me, um, that have helped me. Right? I connect with people. I, you know, and there are things that are, that are bad. But I think that part of the screen time phenomenon that I write about in the book is about how there's been a lot of pressure to um, move away from that ambivalence. In a cultural sense to understand screens as wholly bad or as Mm -hmm. in some way poisoned by the things that are bad about them such that um we need to think about them in terms of regulation and eradication and abstinence right rather than you know uh, qualitatively in terms of what they do for us and against us
2: and is the beginning of this rhetorical framing that you mentioned does it start with this mother jones article by Tom Englehart in 1991, <laughs> or is that just kind of an example of the rise of the idea of screen time as moral panic?
3: So the the idea of screen time and of the regulation of screens and of the idea that screens are bad for you is not, uh, you know, vintage 1991. That's something that has existed since the very beginning. Um, and there are the a lot beginning of... of- at the very beginning of television sorry okay um, I, this is really a, a phenomenon that I think is you know film has uh, has a long history somewhat parallel somewhat separate history of um, of uh-huh. the sort of understanding of it as harmful or, or scary or things like that but the, the the screen time thing that we're dealing with now is I think really a phenomenon of the television era and you um, you know, tele- people have always been worried about TV for, for any number of reasons. You know, in the, in the early days, a lot of the worry was more focused on quality, right? So, you know, this is, this is te- some television is of low quality, some of it is of high mm-hmm. quality, that sort of thing. Um, the, the, the inflection point that is in 1991, or, or that I think is named, is, is how I talk about it in the book, it gets get kind of named in 1991, is this inflection point of understanding the response to these feelings about TV to be a response that needs to be regulatory, Right. That needs to be about uh, raw numbers. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't spend more than an hour on your mm-hmm. screen or you can't spend more than a half hour you know, doing this or that. Um, and I think a lot of it is about the sort of ease of that policy for child rearing. Right. You don't have to deal with all of the the sort of complicated social issues. Um, social vectors of of television or screens if you're for your kids if you're just saying well you can't have them or you can only have them for this amount of time yeah um and so i think that that tom englehart essay kind of gives a name to it that helps it to go viral in the way that it has
2: so what did tom Engelhart mean when he said screen time in 1991 <laughs>
3: So his, his thing was that, so screen time prior to that, and still, to some extent, you know, refers to, um, uh, how much time an actor spends on screen. So like, what's your screen time in uh, this uh-huh. episode of law and order that you're on or something right. like that. Um, and so Tom Engelhart sort of reframed it as screen time, in know, almost a more literal sense, right? How much time are you spending with screens? How much time are your kids spending with screens? And the interesting thing about that article, which I, I have now spent, you know, as oh much time with as I've spent, yeah. you know, teaching literature students to talk about, you know, Moby Dick or something. Yeah. Um, uh, the interesting thing to me about that article is that it has this, this very sort of, you know, strong uh, anti-consumerist message. It's an argument about the over-integration of advertising and children's television. Um, mm-hmm. Englehart says, sort of dates that as a new phenomenon. It wasn't a new phenomenon in 1991. It's a, it's a phenomenon that has been very true throughout television history, but he's not wrong to identify that it was happening, right, that, that mm-hmm. advertisers and, and uh, makers of children's television are are sort of, you know, uh, allied in in some unseemly or unwholesome way, right? Um, and his argument is is basically that that's a problem, right? That there is good TV. There's Mister Rogers, and there's there's TV that sort of tries to reflect the reality of the kids who watch it, and then there's TV that is just basically a commercial, right? And and that we need to differentiate between that and and all that stuff. And uh, I think that to some extent, that argument, that part of his argument, has sort of uh, fallen away a little bit in favor of the part of his argument that's about regulating time. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, again, I think it's because if you want to launch a critique of children's television, you have to pay attention to children's television. I think a lot of people just don't want to do that. And they'd rather just say, okay, well, the problem is time. The problem is amount. The problem is exposure, not what are they being exposed to? How are they interacting with it? Um, how are they engaging with it? And are they engaging with it? Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of very easily and and and, uh, and understandably spread to to p- talking about social media and talking about adult screen time as well.
2: When Tom Engelhart is writing about screen time in 1991. That's obviously like before Kindles and phones Mm -hmm. and the display TV thing on our fridge. Uh, (laughs) Like there's just so many more screens than there were. And so can you kind of chart the difference between the moral panic now in 2023 and the moral panic that he was describing in in 1991?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one big difference is that um, the moral panic now is about everybody. Um, and it's about kids, but it's also about adults. Um, and I think that's largely because, um, of the proliferation of devices, right? So that's, they're, they're linked. Right. And then the second thing is when Englehart is talking about, um, out of, he calls it out of sight time, right? When Mm -hmm. kids are in the living room watching TV or playing video games and you're in the kitchen or, or doing something else, that's out of sight time for him. I think to some extent, um, the the problem that has exacerbated that has become bigger or has become i don't know more of a, an issue is mm. is that out of sight time because these screens are personal they're uh, you know televisions have always been personal right but um S- smartphones and 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 things like that are more personal, right? They are right. individualized. Um, yeah. They are attuned to you, right? They know how many footsteps you're taking, that kind of a thing. And so the questions of surveillance and exposure and bad actors um, in the social media age and in the smartphone age. Um, means that that out of sight time is much more stark mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. for parents especially mm-hmm. it's made worse because parents understand their own self smartphone usage to be bad right They un- maybe because you know like me they grew up in that era right um but also because you know it feels bad sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> and you think well what are my kids getting into right what are the- what are they being exposed to when i can't see them or when they are looking at their devices without me and also like if i can't control myself
2: <laughs> how how on earth am i going to teach them to do yeah. it yeah yeah exactly have you experimented with the screen time app much i
3: i had it deactivated i did not have it activated before i started writing the book um and then i activated it be, to start writing the book so i uh, i do have it um and and i get my little notification and it feels weird <laughs> does it work uh, what do you mean, does it work?
2: Right. I guess, uh, well, so, so the way I use it is I set limits on oh, yeah. specifically Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it's been working in insofar as making me use it a lot less.
3: Right, 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 right. I, so my, um, I feel like I haven't really used the apps limits too much, in part because they're so easy to turn off and on. Yeah. Um, I will say... <laughs> writing and publishing a book is a is a kind of uh, is a stressful process and uh, and the year leading up to this uh, to the book's release I, I have felt, ironically or maybe not ironically maybe you know very directly <laughs> um i've felt that i have fallen over onto sort of doom scrolling type behavior as a way to manage the anxiety mm-hmm. and so um so I, I i go nuclear i delete the app from my from my yep. phone sure unless i have uh, a piece coming out or you know or, or something that i need to you know do some do some I don't know, promotion or see how things are going online, you know, I'll reinstall it if I've got something coming out or, or something like that and then delete it afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I, I mean, I guess the app in, in some sense has given me a sense, given me a, an understanding of how long I'm spending on it, mm-hmm. right? How much time, yeah. uh, but, but yeah.
2: Yeah. I want to, I want to finish with our kids sure. and this is an advice show and whether you like it or not, I'm about to ask you for some advice. Oh no.
3: Um,
2: and it's really just about your lived experience, which mm-hmm. I'm interested in. And it goes back to what you were saying initially about the notion of just not stigmatizing screens. So how precisely does that work in your house, just to give folks an idea if they are interested in in this approach?
3: I am pretty involved in helping the girls choose what they're gonna watch. In um, the process of, of choosing, and it's not in a like, well, you can't watch this or you can't watch that, but we have, you know, they're just in passing. We have a little conversation about what they're in the mm-hmm. mood for or what, mm-hmm. what they might want to see. And we do that. Um, I try to, you know, be with them. Uh, while they're watching on occasion, it, that's obviously not possible all the time, nor right. should it be possible right. all of the time. But I try to, and I think we try to give them the impression that we are sort of in and out of that space, right? This isn't their relationship to the TV is not just them and the TV, right? It's often us. Um, a thing that we also try to do is, um, if they're watching a show and we are able to, is to sit next to them and read.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and it's, it's, that's cool. uh, it's given them, I think, a sense that TV isn't the only thing that they could be doing in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and our older daughter, who who is, you know, over the course of the pandemic has learned to read, will often choose to read instead of watching the show. We're, or we will do what we do and sit with her sister while her sister's watching Mirror Royal Detective and read a book. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's great. I really like that idea. Philip Masiek is the author of avidly reads screen time. It's slim. It's like 168 pages. It's really interesting and it has made me think a lot more about how and why and when with all things screen. So um, Philip, thanks so much for your time. It's always a pleasure.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
1: Finally, let's move on to the part of the show where we're recommending something we're loving right now. Zach, what are you recommending?
2: So, I recently, just this week, introduced Ami to If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, the classic children's book, which I hadn't read in a long time, and he loved it. Like, when he likes a book, we usually read it a bunch, and that's what we've been doing this week. So my recommendation is a two-parter, visiting or, or revisiting If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, but then you can play this game that we invented, we're calling it the mouse game, which he's been asking for before bed, which is a really fun word association game. Uh, you know, he is nearly three, so I think it's perfect for for this age, where, you know, that that story's all about kind of word association. If you give a mouse a cookie, he'll ask for a glass of milk. And so mm-hmm. the game goes like this, where I just say, like, if you give a mouse a basketball, and then Ami says, like, he'll ask for shorts. If you give a mouse an airplane, you know, he'll ask for wings. So it's it's um, a fun game that you can play even if you don't have the book in hand. And it goes really well with the book as well. So the mouse game, along with the classic, if you give a mouse a cookie.
1: Very nice. Well, I'm giving an overdue recommendation to the Barbie movie. Mm-hmm. Naeem and I got to see it about two weeks ago. And it's lovely. You know, it's not perfect. It... Deals with the complicated nature of Barbie and what she represents, I think, as well as it could. It's entertaining. It's fun. We liked it.
2: I liked I saw it, too. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I mean, and the, the musical numbers with Gosling were freaking entertaining as they hell. They
1: were very entertaining.
2: What did you think about its, like, um, articulation or, or critique of, of feminism?
1: I thought it was interesting, you know, Um, one of the big plot lines is that Ken discovers patriarchy and brings it to Barbie land and, you know, very quickly realizes that men generally have the upper hand and they control society and the Barbies have to reclaim, you know, their matriarchy from Ken and I wish they talked a little bit more just about what it means for women to live under patriarchy, you Mm -hmm. know, and why the Barbie universe exists in the way it does and Mm -hmm. poses this alternative universe for women and for little rather for little girls to fantasize about, you know, what the world could look like. I wish they dug a little deeper there.
2: Yeah. Did Naima come away with any big questions or, uh, or, declarations
1: No she didn't and she and her girlfriend screamed the lyrics to the Nicki Minaj and Ice Spice song um the one that has the Barbie World sample
2: That was so the good. The Barbie
1: Girl sample? Yeah. Uh-huh. They screamed it at the closing credits. They were very very excited, but we didn't really have any profound conversations about it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um it, it I mean it exceeded my expectations.
1: Did you take the little ones?
2: No. I was Do you th- What do you think? Do you think Noah Do you think a six year old would have fun in that movie?
1: No, it would probably bore her, honestly. I mean, I think some of that too. I think some of the magic of Barbie land would be interesting to her, but I think the story would be hard to follow. But I do think it's time for her to have her first Barbie.
2: Okay. I'll tell her that Auntie Jamila is uh, signing off on that.
1: I will send her a Barbie.
2: Oh, that's nice. She has been asking for them, and we have been listening to. The song barbie girl um i think it's probably just a matter of time at this point
1: yeah yeah well that's our show you guys uh please subscribe leave a rating and review and of course tell your friends this episode of mom and dad are fighting is produced by rosemary belson and Mara curry shasha leonard is the voice of our listeners alicia montgomery is vp of slate audio for zach rosen i'm jamila lemieux thank you for listening